welcome to another episode of Thick and Thin. It's been a tough week, given all that's transpired over the last few days. We do have, in the second half of this pod, we're going to get to the NBA returning in July and the new format that they've landed on. But but first, Nathan, I do want to talk about all the events and all that's been going on the last couple of days and get your thoughts. Yeah, man, it's it's been a really sad time in our country. I think it's demoralizing to see um, something like what happened last week in Min- uh, Minneapolis with uh, George Floyd murdered. Um, and frankly, as much as it always feels like we're making progress in a lot of ways, there are so many reminders that we have a long way to go to really create uh, racial and in- racial equality in this country. Um, I was thinking back uh, to a, uh, you know, a memory of mine from a statistics class I took in high school where we read an article called Driving While Black. And it's kind of a provocative title, right? And so right off the bat, you're sort of trying to understand what it's going to be about. And essentially, one of the things that shines a light on is just how much more uh, susceptible uh, black people are to any type of action from police and how much it's not only about the police brutality, it's about the systemic uh, environment that creates a lot of disadvantaged situations, right? And so you think about everything that contributes to something like Derek Chauvin killing um, George Floyd. You have the lack of accountability in the police department. You have uh, protocols that, you know, leave a lot of gray area, um, do not have good regulation around what is and isn't allowed. And then most of all, you have people who frankly seem like they are targeting black people, right? And the, the challenging thing for a lot of people is to understand, we never know what being in that position is like. We always think we understand, we think we have a sense and we, we empathize. But to actually be someone who's at risk or is fearful is something that, you know, it really isn't about you and your individual life. It's really about this entire environment that um, is very sadly and tragically built um, to keep people down in a lot of cases. And I think this is an example of that, right? This can be an example. When you talk about incarcerations, that can be an example. When you talk about education, that can be an example. And there's so many instances that remind us that this isn't a land of equal and fair opportunity. Um, you know, we hope that we one day get there and we're, we're clearly not. And uh, as much as I was demoralized, I will say I was uplifted by the incredible support countrywide to maybe give us hope that, you know, we're going to get to where we need to get to. And now there's enough eyeballs or uh, eventually there will be enough eyeballs and actual action uh, to get there. Yeah, it's been it's been a tough week. And I think it's it's been a week of a lot of um, reflecting, too, on on this. And, you know, sometimes it's easy to think of things in binary terms, either you're a racist or not racist. And a lot of us would like to say we're not racist whether it's us, whether it's our families, whether it's our entire social circles, no one is ever claims that they're racist. But I think what needs to, and we need constant reminders, and it's sad that we need to constantly be reminded that, it, like you said, it's it goes much deeper than that. There's so much gray. There's so many things that are systemic that we take for granted. And what we call white privilege is not just white privilege. It's, it's privilege among 
a lot of races. And even as an as an Asian American, as a South Asian, we we see ourselves as minorities in this country. We see sometimes we spend too much time talking about our own obstacles and the challenges of being brown. And mm-hmm. I don't think we reflect enough on the privilege we do have and a lot of the same privileges we share with with white people. And we came to this country, what, starting in the 60s, 70s, to the end of the 60s, 70s, when immigration really started to, to flow in. But what really enabled us to do that was all the the suffering that you know, African Americans have to go through, what Black people have to go through in this country, and so I think it it's been a week of just figuring out what can we do as a nation. It's not about white versus black; it's about everyone to really help address this um, and get to the root of this because it's going to come up. It'll come up every couple of years. Um, it, it's not something that's going to go away until we really get to the root of the problem and we have a really collaborative effort from across the board to help solve it and it has to go beyond political boundaries it has to go beyond social um you know know, socioeconomic boundaries it has to be a collective effort but that's such a a hard thing to do but i think it's good that now we're finally starting to re-examine it and figure out what are the steps we need to get there yeah, it's such a good point, right? Like we came, we were, we came here to the country to be Java developers, right? And black people came as slaves in the 1600s, and we say, well, that was the 1600s. That was 400 years ago. What does that matter today? Some people will say that it's like, what you don't understand about that is think about any friend you know being a little bit ahead of you because whatever was in their favor in life. Now expand that over 400 years, and you're fighting this uphill battle that, you know. In a lot of cases, the reason why um, stuff like this has happened for so long and goes unchecked for so long is because there hasn't been that support to say, hey, it's not just me as a black person or me as whoever is being oppressed to stand up. I need my allies to stand up and I need people who are in positions to make change um, or to drive change stand up and say, hey, we need to we need to alter the way we're doing things. And. Yeah, like if we don't take action now, we're going to go away and, you know, the next topic will will take up our attention in the news cycle and we'll be back here again. And we're going to be asking ourselves, wait a second, didn't we just have mass protests? Didn't we just have all this attention? What happened? And it's going to be like, well, you didn't do anything. You continued to let it uh, manifest itself without taking action. And I think, I hope, um, you know, to me, this feels like what, what, what's your thought around this feels bigger to me um, than what we saw with Trayvon Martin, what we saw with Tamir Rice, with Eric Garner, Michael Brown. Like this feels like more of a, a nationwide movement. I read earlier that when you consider this is a Black Lives Matter is a protest that has happened now in all 50 states and in 18 countries. It's the largest civil rights movement in the world in history. So what do you think about this particular instance? Um that it does feel like maybe the tides are turning, the wheels are starting to turn a little bit. I do think they are because um, just from my own social circles and the people I interact with, when we when Trayvon Martin happened, when all these things happened, we all acknowledge the injustice. You know, may, some of us may have posted on social media about it, but I think what I'm seeing different this time around, um, and of course, much more work needs to go. But I think people are listening more. 
um, or trying to listen more. At least this is what I'm observing. And there, so many of my friends, so many people around have talked about, have contributed ideas around who should we be donating towards? What are the causes we should be fighting for? How can we actually support them? Whether that's giving our time, whether that's giving our money. And this week, I felt like I've a lot of actionable things I can take to make not only myself a better person, but to actually help this cause and to help ensure that it doesn't happen again. Whereas I think four years ago, eight years ago, there wasn't this groundswell of of um, not just it's money and time that, that was being devoted to this outside of the black community. Mm-hmm. I think now, or at least what I'm hoping for and what I think I'm seeing is that we're seeing more of that support coming from all communities. And I hope that continues over the next you know, several years. I hope it doesn't just end with this week and when it falls out of the news cycle, all of a sudden that stops. Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's some external factors that have provided more attention on this. Uh, the fact that we're in the middle of a, a pandemic where there's a lot of people at home. Um, and the fact that I think more than ever, we're understanding that there are some people, and, and maybe this this has always existed, but it's just more attention on it, whether it's because of social media, whether it's because of, frankly, this divisive environment that Trump has created, we're finding out a lot of people who have a certain hate in their hearts that is never going to go away. And that's a really sad thing. And I think that's created the side of allies, created the side of people who want to support and want to fight for the cause and has created a tighter bond, right? Because there's a an opposite faction out there that believes something that is totally counter to what we're trying to say and what we're trying to fight for. And, um, you know, maybe part of it has to do with there was very, very damning and, and, and disturbing video, right. Of what happened. And I don't know, man, it's, it's definitely, it's emotional to even think about it because like we said, we never fear for ourselves in that same type of situation. And it's impossible to quite put into context what that must feel like. Um, And, uh, you know, I think one of the benefits of us becoming a more sensitive society, a more uh, knowing and informed society, I, I hope in some parts, is that we do become more cognizant of injustices that are taking place and not just cognizant in that knowing about it, but we're becoming more of empathizers. Um, that, you know, look, the country is as strong as its youth, right? It's as strong as the people who are active and going out there and doing things. And I think one of the things that was really encouraging in 2008, for example, when President Obama was elected, is that there was a youth movement to say, hey, this is the change we want. And on the backs of the youth as well now is when we're going to make change. People who are committed to doing things and people who are uh, motivated, um, and I hope that continues to your point. Yeah, and um, and I think part of what made this so sad too or tragic was not only obviously you have one end of the spectrum where a man was literally murdered um, because of the treatment by a cop, but right before that you remember the Amy Cooper story yep. where it was the complete other end of the spectrum, somewhat of a juxtaposition in terms of something much more innocent, no physical action or violence, but literally 
the power of your words and the power of the fact that a woman felt that say, using someone's race as a threat right. that knowingly, if you if she mentioned that to the, the police or who she called, that would instigate a larger reaction. Than she, if she knew just calling him black it. was a trigger. It was a trigger. That's a good word for it. Yeah, Which exactly. is insane. Trigger. And so that, like, when you combine both of those things where it doesn't have to be something as obvious where you look at George Floyd and everyone, I hope, right, even though people may have different views on, on protests and all that, everyone is on the same page that it was a horrible thing to happen. But it's the gray areas where things like where Amy Cooper, who I'm sure she didn't consider herself racist, but these are things that are ingrained in us and just instinctive to react like that. And so, I mean, not all of us, but there are people who don't consider themselves racist, but will act like that when they feel threatened. Yeah. That's the scariest part of it all um, is that there are so many people who are like her. Maybe they're not as many. Not everyone's like Chauvin, but there are a lot, a lot of people who think like an Amy Cooper, which is. Yeah, I mean, there's so much implicit racism. And again, like we shouldn't point fingers everywhere else and not look at ourselves. We should do the same. Like what type of, you know, stereotypes do we take in any given conversation? Right. Like what whether that person is black, whether that person's Korean, whether that person is Mexican, whatever it may be, what are we thinking in our heads before we even speak to them? Right. Or before we even interact. And too often we take these stereotypes in because they've been developed for some reason, right? So we think there's some element of truth to whatever we think. But it's also the lazy way out. We're not necessarily going to know some, you know, build up our impression from scratch because we're like, here are all these like checkpoints that we can basically consider. And it really makes you think, um, like, if you talk to, there are some that are not that damaging and there are some that are extremely damaging. And you shouldn't treat those two the same, right? And in this case, with the type of pr police brutality that exists against black people, it's an extremely damaging stereotype that leads to this point. Um, and I, I think I feel terribly for a lot of different reasons, but one is because, like think about someone like Derek Chauvin who literally getting recorded from people five feet away. He's got three police officers all around him doing nothing. And for eight minutes and 47 seconds to, to consciously make the decision to stay in place with his knee on his neck, that's unconscionable, right? And to think people have this perspective and who, what happens if the videos weren't there? That story is being told differently. What happens if nobody hears about it? It's getting booked as, you know, whatever, like, he himself has had like three or four very serious violent incidents in the past that he didn't get in trouble for. So I think the lack of accountability combined with the the amount of prejudice that a lot of people have is a very, very dangerous com combination, um, especially for people in law enforcement who wield a, you know authority over civilians. Yeah, absolutely. And there's there's a lot of reform that needs to happen there. Um, and there are a lot, I mean, there's, there's studies, there's data that shows what methods are effective and what's not effective in terms of curbing police brutality, curbing police, um, kind of these, these types of issues. And I think we're getting smarter as a society to 
figure out what are the things we need to be addressing, what needs to happen across the board, because like this is becomes a state by state issue, becomes a department by department issue, right? There isn't um, it. What happens in one county may not happen in another, but we need to all collectively come to a set of standards and we need to revamp the entire system. So it's not OK anywhere, no matter where you are, whether it's rural, whether it's urban, whether it's a Democratic state or Republican state where certain things are not allowed um, because it's there's there are a lot of things that clearly can be addressed to help solve this issue. And we need to do whatever it takes to address them. Yeah. Um, and look, I think there's been a lot of talk about the effectiveness of protests and the effectiveness of your voice. We do this thing where we marginalize our own power a lot. It happens with uh, voting, most notably, where it's like, whatever, I don't need to go vote because who cares? You know, it's one in millions. Look at the power of the protests um, and look at the power of people voicing uh, their anger, their frustration. So George Floyd, as I just said, we don't even know what would have happened if we didn't see the video. If that wasn't that didn't become a national scene, we may never have known of the story. The you know the officer Derek Chauvin was originally arrested for third degree murder. That's now been upgraded to second degree. The other three officers weren't arrested for a while. Now they've been arrested and booked. Uh, Brianna Taylor, her case was already closed and dismissed. They reopened that case to do another investigation because of the protests, because of people's voices. Ahmad Arbery, that incident happened weeks before we even heard about it, right? And if people are not going to hold themselves accountable to a certain standard of behavior and a certain standard of tolerance and a certain standard of love for one another, it is on us. It is on everyone to say, hey, we're going to be the whistleblowers because we have need to we need to like sh spot uh, show a light on all of the tragedy that's happening. Um, and, we, and we need to keep our foot on the gas because yeah. uh, like I think the attention's helping that the we're drawing the right attention. We're hopefully things continue to, to pan out this way in which we are able to convict those who deserve to be convicted. The, the challenge is a year from now. This will die down. There's maybe no triggering event that happens. Yeah. And then do we revert back to old behaviors, old yeah. biases? Well, like, how do you fundamentally shift the way people think? That yeah. can't happen over the course of a couple of weeks of protesting. Yeah. It needs to happen over several years. And you need to somehow keep up the momentum. And that's that's the hard part. How do you do that? It starts with education. It starts with getting people to understand. Mm -hmm. But it's... You know, that's the part where it's like, who knows? Like, we don't know if in a couple of years we're going to be back to right where we are. And yeah, that's I think the, one of the frustrating things that has been coming up this week is that this is not new. This has been happening. Um, right. But how can we finally turn the tide to, to kind of go in the right direction? Yeah, I have been frustrated that by that. By I understand people are advocates and people are allies, but it does feel like there's been a lot of surprise almost at the plight of black people in a lot of ways versus a recognition that this is just one more. Um, and that's frustrating. That's a big reason of why we are where we are. Um, and I'm not saying that I'm this, you know, huge human rights activist. Like, look, I'm as culpable, I'm as to blame as anybody else for, for propagating this type of environment. All I'm saying is that I think 
we live in these bubbles. We live in these like echo chambers. We live in these like perfect little ecosystems that we've created for ourselves where, you know, we go to work, work, we hang out with our friends, we go on vacation, we do all these awesome things. And we don't stop to think about the people who aren't living life like that. And, you know, like you said, if you don't make this into something, whether it's donating money, donating time, raising awareness, whatever it is, then it's going to go away and we'll be back to where we are uh, a week ago. Like I saw, and look, I did the same. I saw a lot of people on Instagram posting the black squares for Blackout Tuesday. Um, I did the same. I didn't even fully understand what the movement was or that it was happening that day until I opened my Instagram Tuesday morning and it was flooded with this. And so I wanted to be a part of it for the purpose of, you know, raising awareness. But if I'm not doing anything more, then all I'm doing it almost reminds me of the ALS ice bucket challenge where people were like, I just want to pour ice on my head. And it was like, let me get on Facebook and just dump a bucket of ice and that'll be fun and nominate three more people. The whole crux of that was to raise money for ALS and to find a cure to this disease. It wasn't to like have fun with friends, you know? And similarly, this isn't a fun thing, but it's almost like, Yes, you want to be part of a movement, but do so because you believe in its cause, not because it's the cool thing or the popular thing or, um, you know, the end thing to be doing at that moment. It's very, very important that people make that distinction so that next week when we're talking about 10 other topics, you're still thinking about this and how you can improve your behavior and improve your tolerance. Yeah, that's the worry, right? There's there's always the worry is that there's virtue signaling where it's people are doing it to to show that they are on the side of public opinion. They, what, maybe people are doing it for the likes. They know that's going to get likes on Instagram. Like, mm-hmm. that's always the worry. I think what I've liked about this compared, like you said, the eight stuff like the ice bucket challenge, I think what's different this time is I'm seeing so many people, I'm learning so much about what are the organizations to donate from, yeah. to who should I be donating? And these are all coming from my network who, that same network, I think, four years ago, it would have been something done more for, for not for clout, but just to show that you, you know, hey, we, yeah, we believe in the right things. But I see more acting on, and of course, this is just my own network. Yeah, but I'm, I am seeing that shift where people are being more proactive on how they're thinking about it. Yes, it starts with the black square. Fine, there's nothing wrong with the black square. I think it's good to help drive awareness. And now the next step, like you said, needs to be taken by everyone, and hopefully is at least thought about by everyone. What can you do beyond that? That's just the first step. Um, but I, it's been enlightening for me because I'm thinking about what I can do as those next couple of steps. And I'm hoping everyone else is starting to think like that as well. Yeah. I mean, if you want to talk virtue signaling, you, you don't have to go any further than some of the companies that have put out statements, have put out support, who have done everything opposite to that. Yeah. You know, let's start with the NFL for one. Um, I thought it was really rich for them to come out against against this when, you know, a person who was peacefully protesting for this exact cause, who's been telling us in as peaceful, as respectful manner as you could find in terms of not disrupting the flow of society, yet still drawing awareness. And they told him to fuck off. And I think there's a lot of people repenting. And a lot of people saying, look, Cap, you were right. That if I'm him and again, I'm not him, I can't tell what I, that doesn't make me f- happy because all it's telling me is that you're moving the goalpost on what 
you want to fight against, right? The people who don't want to believe in this movement will find every reason not to believe in the movement. Now the, the argument is like, well, this isn't the right way to do it. You shouldn't destroy property like peaceful protests. When there is a peaceful protest, you're like, no, you should be doing it on your own time, not disrespecting the flag of the military. You're not able to see what the cause or the purpose of the intent is. So you're focusing on the means as to where to place your frustration or your uh, disapproval, right? And that shows me those kinds of people are, how do you get them to get with the cause? I don't know. You take someone like Drew Brees, who after all this time is still saying that kneeling for the flag is a, dis excuse me, kneeling for the national anthem is disrespectful to the country, the flag, the military. When everyone who's been a part of this movement in the kneeling movement have said over and over again that it's not the case. But how do you get someone like that to listen? And that's that's the worst part of it all. Like the Drew Brees one stings a lot because Drew Brees is seen as, uh, I mean, for the majority, he has a very favorable public image. He's a great he's, humanitarian. I don't want to take humanitarian. away from him. He's, he's you know, donated tons of money, even for COVID, um, you know, five million um, going to support those affected. And so it's it's tough to see someone like that who's been surrounded by teammates and teammates who believed in them, teammates who've come out in the recent and said, hey, look, we've looked up to you. And for him to come out and then say something as tone deaf, and it's not even about, it, it's just totally tone deaf when he's like, I don't respect people or what he said, like, I don't support those who disrespect the flag. And yeah, it's like if the light bulb still hasn't gone off in, in someone like Drew Brees, and if it's not gone off in his head, think about the tons of other people who also don't don't realize it either. And you know, another example is the King's commentator who was fired because Cousins baited him by tweeting at him saying, what are your thoughts on Black Lives Matter? Mm -hmm. And his response was, all lives matter. And in his mind, he thought by saying that, he was supporting the cause. And that that cognitive dissonance or just that misunderstanding is, it's so prevalent out there. And yeah. it's, and it, and I don't know, some some of it is people looking, like moving the goalposts and trying to find, but I think some of it is just people still don't get it. They just don't understand what this is about. They don't understand that no one is saying, like, you're not as important, but clearly there's an issue that needs to be addressed. And I don't know why it's so hard for people to get behind that. It's It's frustrating. Yeah, I mean, it's a very similar notion to saying, I don't see color, right? Um... First of all, that's complete bullshit. Secondly, you should see color. Color is important. Our diversity, our ethnicity, our different backgrounds, cultures, all of those things are important. They're, it's what makes us a heterogeneous society that produces great outcomes, right? Diversity of thought is the number one thing that you get to, you know, whether that's race, gender, creed, religion, sexual orientation, whatever it may be, those are the types of things where if you have a variety of people, you, you know, study show, you get to a better outcome. So you shouldn't be someone to run away from that. You should see color. You should understand what different color, different cultures brings to you. And, you know, the King's commentator, for example, was, you know, as it sounds, has a history of these kind of comments. And I think, yeah, I think, you know, this is this is an instance where we talk about privilege, right? And like privilege manifests in a lot of different ways. Um, 
there's a privilege element where people think everyone has the same opportunity. You, you're born, you just got to work hard, you go get something, right? There's a privilege standpoint where it's like, look, it's not that I think anyone is better or worse than, than my group. It's that I just think they're different and therefore it's not necessarily who, like, you know, growing up Indian American, we know many people in the Indian community, the Hindu Indian community, I should say, that that propagate this kind of uh, perspective in India, whether it's against Muslim people, whether against Pakistani people, whether it's against uh, people of lower castes, right? It happens all the time. Um, it's happened for generations in India towards those people. I think it's very similar to how it happens here in some cases. Again, not everyone is bad. Not every person needs to be painted with the same brush, but you can see some of those um, cultural elements take shape here that are similar to some of the things that we've probably experienced. Yeah. And that's why I, I don't like the term white privilege because it's, it's privilege. That's not just whites that share. It's privilege. All of us share those of us that are not, that are not black. We, we have a lot of privilege that we take for granted. And I think the problem with privilege is everyone looks at their own situation and they can find, even if you're a white male, um, you've had all the, you know, advantages given to you maybe, um, in society, but you're, there are things you're going to find in your life that convince you that you weren't privileged. There were, maybe you had a harsh upbringing. Maybe you were passed over multiple times for jobs that you thought you were qualified for. Everyone contextualizes and thinks that they're not privileged. And I think that's mm -hmm. the problem. And, and, you know, even as, as South Asians, we do the same thing where, Sometimes we think of ourselves as minorities. We think of that incident where um, someone made a joke about 9-11 to us. I don't know if that's yeah. happening, but like, you know, or yes, someone yeah. made those kinds of things. And then we think, oh, my God, we are so, you know, we're attacked. We're, we're facing all these challenges. And right. we don't realize that in the grand scheme of things, when you think about the plight that black people face in this country, I'm not saying that we don't face our, some of our own issues, but we're still so privileged and we don't acknowledge that enough or don't realize that enough. And oftentimes we're putting that on white folks. Everyone's looking at whites as they're the ones privileged, but it's really so many groups in society are, have that privilege. And I think what I'm learning this week and, you know, everyone is kind of now thinking about it and reflecting on it. And I hope people come out of this realizing that this is something that extends across all ethnicities. It's not yeah. just a white or black. Yeah, it's funny because my friends growing up, we always be like, hey, yeah, when I want to, when I become an adult, I just want to grow up to be a white guy. And we would joke about that, right? Because we were always like, well, that's the pinnacle. And maybe even if that's the case to some degree, like there's no version of my life that didn't grow up in an advantageous situation. Even if I'm public school educated, I went up normally. It's not like I pulled myself up by the bootstraps without any support or help. Even having a perspective like a mom that's staying at home to teach me certain things about like, hey, you should go join this club or you should take part in this. Like all of these things, like you said, we do not understand how these things manifest themselves in the broader tone in terms of shaping our perspective, in terms of shaping our opportunity set, right? Ultimately, I, I think, I can't remember where I um, heard this quote, but it was something to the effect of like talent is not concentrated, opportunity is concentrated, right? The world, if you look at it, people are equally talented. 
it's who has the door open for them that they can step through and actually make good on that talent. And I'm a big proponent of that because it's like, I, you know, I used to ask my mom, I, like we would go to India when I was a kid, right? And we would see India has so many poor people. Um, so you'd see poor people and you, I'd, I'd cry and I'd ask my mom, like, you know, someone who was, looked like they were my age. And I'd be like, why me, not them? Or why them, not me? And what's the answer for that? There isn't. You're just, it's fortune, it's luck, whatever you want to call it. And I think we need to be way more cognizant of how much that matters um, and understanding that a big part of creating an equal platform, even if that's something that we'll never truly get to because maybe there's certain limitations, but creating an equal platform isn't to say, let's take away opportunity from you. It's to really be like, let's actually be, let's give everyone the starting point and everyone the opportunity to go be great and go figure out a way to to make it to the top because winning a race where you're starting on third base is, is not as difficult, you know? Yeah. And, and so, it, and it's hard for people to, to shift the focus from why am I not afforded certain opportunities mm-hmm. to why is why are people not afforded the same opportunities I've been getting? Um, and you know, we're, people are selfish just by human nature. Yeah. And it takes a lot to a lot of empathy, a lot of, learning and like to understand that other side of it mm-hmm. um and, and i don't know like i've i talked to my and like i do think south asians we have a lot of prejudices a lot of biases like you mentioned and that's it's not okay it's not okay just because we think of ourselves as a minority and i think hopefully this is also a wake-up call for whether it's us whether it's other minorities that think you know, not only should you be mindful of the obstacles you face and the the challenges and privilege you have, you, you yeah. have to think about, you know, everyone. I was listening to, I don't know if you caught Arian Foster's interview on part of my take this week, um, but it was a great, great interview. I think he offered a lot of good perspective. He's, he's a super thoughtful guy, but he talked about how um, he's like, I hear a lot about white guilt, right? And it's like, well, why should I be guilty because I'm white? Like, why should I feel guilty? Excuse me. And he said, it's not that you should feel guilty. You should just feel empathy, right? And that's the real distinction that maybe is lost on a lot of people. The nuance where it's like, no one's blaming anyone for being who they are and being born in the way that they're born. That's luck, whatever. But what do you do to acknowledge those differences, especially when you've been given a better hand? I think that's really, really important. Yeah, I mean, people... People think not being racist is enough. That's the fundamental problem. Mm-hmm. No, it's not about you're not racist. Oh, congratulations. You think, you, you know, that makes you. It, no, it's about how do you bring up everyone to your level? Uh, and yeah. I think that's the, the challenge. It's you shouldn't feel guilty whether you're white or whether you're any other. Ethnic. You shouldn't feel guilty. Yeah. But you should recognize that you're afforded certain privileges and there's something you are culpable or you have a responsibility to do to make sure others have the same privileges. Yeah. One thought um, before we wrap up here is I wanted to talk about the climate in this country and how much that's, um, you know, worsened the, 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 the relationship um, between the two sides we have. It feels like, you know, in this time, whether it's the pandemic or whether it's these, 
you know, protests that are going on nationwide to to promote racial equality. It feels like we have the worst possible leader in place um, in a lot of ways where he didn't cause this. Right. This isn't the first time um, we talked about this has been going on for decades. But to not have some type of unifying guidance or voice I think is really hurtful. I think it's really damaging. And I also think it's, it really cuts off the cause at its knees in some ways where you have the president of the United States almost not appreciating what this is about. Again, mo- focus more on the, the means rather than the intent. And it, and it sucks to see, like it sucks to see that we're, we're it almost feels like we're pushing each other further apart when we, to solve this, to really solve this, it has to be everyone, not just people who identify as Democrats. It has to be everyone. And we're getting further and further from that seeming to be a reality. And and I think he's had a huge hand in that, and it's really unfortunate. The sad thing is both sides realize, like, I mean, if we're talking specifically about George Floyd, both sides realize how horrible what happened was. Mm-hmm. And this is a chance for unity in terms of I mean, everyone's going to have their own opinions. But as a leader, this is your chance. Like you can it's not one group feeling one way versus other group feeling another way. Everyone at the core of it, they understand this was wrong. So as a leader, it's your responsibility to to provide that empathy, show that you're you know, you understand what happened. You're listening and provide that kind of. um just that empathetic voice to help people Heal. realize the gravity yeah. of what happened. And Obama, you know, recently did a, did a town hall and it's it's so stark the way he's talking about it. He's empathetic. He's It's not about being political. It's about understanding this horrible thing that happened and how as a nation we can heal from it. And the fact is Trump could have done that. It doesn't matter whether he's Republican or Democrat. Even the past couple of years and the horrible per- – I mean, what you know, people have different thoughts, but whatever your thoughts are on, he had a chance to come and provide that that voice, and I yeah. think he missed an, a huge opportunity. And by not doing that, you're creating even more divisiveness on an issue that shouldn't be this polarizing. Ultimately, yeah, like we shouldn't have black people feeling fearful for their lives um, around police officers officers who are intended, if it works right, to to give you support and to give you stability. And like, if that's not working, then we need change. Like similar to what we're going to talk about with the pandemic, there are certain positions that should not have two sides. Yeah. Right. And I think Trump is, he's very self-serving in nature and he understands that his path to four more years is about strengthening the people who will go with whatever he says. And, you know, Whenever he's out of office, whether it's this November or in four more years, and I'm really, really hoping it's the former, we need to find a way for the president to govern the whole or to lead the whole country. Because um, even if Biden wins, there's mending to be done on the side that supported Trump. And despite all the things they've said and done, and you have to have everyone on board because we're not going to figure out a way to to work together and, and to be, you know, jointly prosperous unless we do that this yeah this is a tragedy that's 
affected the that affects the entire country. Just like nine yeah. eleven was a tragedy that affects the entire country. There's no right or wrong about it. Like what you think about Iraq and everything that ensues at that moment, everyone as a nation is hurting. Right. And Trump, it just says a lot about his presidency and the you know even the last four years that it's come to a point like this, and you still can't provide that empathetic voice that galvanize the nation around this horrific thing that happened um, and making it about an election, about an election that, yes, obviously it's an important election given all that's happened in the past couple of years, but to to make this about an election um, and for both sides to make it about an election, it's just sad that, it, that it's come down to this when that should be the last thing on our minds right now. Yeah, but... You know, nonetheless, the grassroots work, uh, whether it's people raising money, whether it's people protesting, whether it's all of the activism um, that's gone on has been really uh, mesmerizing in a lot of ways. Uh, it's been encouraging. It's been it's provided me a little bit of hope. Uh, hopefully the same that the people who are in charge of that next generation um, are going to care about more than just, you know, votes going to care about more than just the stock market and going to care more about than more about just how do we um, economically prosper? How do we socially prosper as well? I think is, is equally, if not more important. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I think I'd encourage, we need to keep learning. I think you never can stop learning and understanding the issue because um, there's a lot to it. And I think I encourage everyone to do your part, whether that's, um, having the conversations, whether it's donating your money, whether it's donating your time, like find ways to contribute in a positive way. And different people have different ways to do that. There's no one right way, but find ways to help address this um, that go beyond just talking about it for a week. I think all of us can take that as a next step and be better about that moving forward. Great, man. We're going to take a quick break and then we're going to dive into the return of the NBA, um, which is slated for late July. Be right back. Welcome back. We are now going to dive into some NBA news. Um, finally, they've landed on a format for the season to resume. So we're going to discuss that a little bit. But first, we wanted to introduce our executive producer, Kush Sodia, all the way from Bangkok, joining us to talk about the NBA return and, and this global pandemic we're dealing with. So, Kush, how are you doing, man? Yeah, I'm doing good, man. It's good to join you guys. I know we've done a lot of uh, – we've talked a lot about the pod offline. Uh, I'm excited. I'm a bit nervous to be on the pod. Uh, excited about the NBA restarting. I'm also excited about the fact that they just announced Manchester United's first game back is June 19th against Tottenham. So, as you guys know, my first love is the United Second love is a Celtic, so I'll talk about NBA, but I wanted to get that out there as well. It should be noted the Celtics' first game is against your 24-40 and 40 Washington Wizards looking for that <laughs> playoff spot. Um, you know what I was thinking of, Nathan? Who was the Bill Simmons' uh, producer? What's his name? Uh, what's his name? Cousin... Nephew, nephew Kyle. Kyle. Nephew, nephew Kyle. Kyle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kush is our, is our resident nephew Kyle here. Exactly. He's put up with a lot of our back and forth, figuring out when to record, what to talk about, which LeBron take for you not to take onto air so that people don't get upset. I mean, to be honest, I was going to be drunk house, but it's 8 a.m. here, so it wouldn't have been appropriate. 
Yeah, a little bit disappointed. I thought you were gonna gonna prep like you used to do right. back in booth days, man. But <laughs> but anyways, let's get let's dive right into the action. Um, so let's first talk a little bit about the the new format that they landed on. I mean, Nathan, we've been discussing the last couple of weeks. Um, there's been a lot of rumblings on some of the proposals and what some teams are favoring, what the players are favoring. We finally have it. It's going to be 22 teams, 13 from the West, which is the eight playoff teams, and then five additional teams. And then in the East, we've got nine, which is the, your Washington Wizards. Somehow, I don't even know if they wanted it, sneaking into this this tournament or this midseason kind of resuming a play. And essentially what we have is we're going to have eight regular season games to determine seating. Lottery standings are actually going to be locked uh, for the remaining teams, and all the games through March is what's going to determine lottery standings. So I think that was important because every team playing games now has an incentive to try to get that into the playoffs. So the Wizards, Suns, Kings, all those teams on the fringe have an incentive to play and win. And then the little wrinkle that the NBA has thrown in is after the eight games are played, if the ninth seed is within four games of the eighth seed, there's a little playoff that happens, or a little mini-series, let's call it, where if the eighth seed wins head-to-head against the ninth seed, they advance and play the first seed in the first round. If they lose, they have one more shot at it, um, and the ninth seed has to win twice in a row, essentially, to to advance. So Nice little interesting wrinkle, gives some of those fringe playoff teams a chance, but at the same time still allows the eighth seed to maintain some kind of advantage. So went through a lot there. First off, and let's start with with you, Nathan. What are your thoughts on just where we landed, what you think of the overall proposal? Um, Yeah. Yeah, so I think, look, I think where they landed is the most logical answer for a couple of reasons, right? They couldn't bring back any team that didn't have something active to play for. Um, We're talking a four month layoff, I think, almost, you know, five months by the time that they really start games, four and a half months. And so you couldn't bring back a team like the Warriors or a team like the Cavs who have nothing to play for to go sit there. There's the obvious health considerations and there's also the layoff injury factors that are going to be in play. At the same time, you would basically invalidate your entire regular season if you somehow made the playoffs a possibility for all 30 teams. Um, I always felt like 20 made more sense. I love the World Cup idea. I think driving that kind of monumental change midseason would not be uh, in the best interest of the league because they need to think these things through and not just do it because of you know certain extenuating factors. Um, so I think it makes sense. They have to make up some regular season revenue, right? The eight games gets them to the 70 game threshold for the RSNs. Um, it also provide they couldn't go, in my opinion, they couldn't go straight to the playoff teams. You cannot expect LeBron or Giannis to take the floor for the first time in a game one. Um, and so the only thing that I would say um, that I don't necessarily understand is this weird balance of five in the West, one in the East. Uh, I know they took the top 22 teams by record, but if you're going to do that, which is fine, it's not like I'm worried about the Bulls or the Pistons staying at home. It's more that if you're going to bring five teams from the West, why don't more of them get involved in this play in? Right. Let it be a three or four team round robin. Otherwise, 
a lot of them are going to be going home. And even though they're all clustered together now, I think halfway through this eight games, we might know who has a chance and who doesn't. So that would be my only thought. The Wizards being <laughs> in this elite group is a joke. Um, there are some very, very minor rumblings about a potential return of uh, a top three point guard in the league when healthy John Wall. I don't think he'll play, but he should. So if he does, that would change things. If he doesn't, I think we're going to go quietly into the night. Kush, what are your thoughts? First of all, how is that going to change things? Like John Wall is really going to make them uh, like a beast in the East somehow, or you'll, they'll just I, about sneak into the playing game, you mean? I had a dream last night because this was sort of announced in full yesterday, but I had a dream last night that we beat the Bucks in round one because Wall came back. <laughs> This is this is what's taking up my time right now. That's exactly where that that scenario is going to stay, mate. So, look, I mean, I think you're right. The the format makes a ton of sense. I think it's pretty cool that every game's going to matter. I think the fact that we're not going to have to watch teams tank is a pretty pretty good result of this. And you know, inevitably, that wouldn't have worked anyway. Um, and I look, I think that look, getting back to like live sports is an important thing. I think the playing games will be interesting because. That's something that could actually end up being something they carry on into the next few years, right? This is finally a testing ground for that, something that people have talked about for a really long time. So it'll be interesting to see how that works. I know in baseball, it's like a pretty exciting match, right? Like when they brought that in, it, it became a pretty exciting time. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that goes in the NBA, but probably not going to see a lot of like play-in teams ending up going beyond the first round, but give someone something to play for. So I think that, that's the part that I'm pretty excited about. A couple of years ago, the Nuggets and the Timberwolves, if you remember, played an effective yeah. play-in game because they just had the same record and um, everyone was watching. I mean, again, they lost round one. The Timberwolves right. won. They lost round one in five games, but everyone was watching. So I do think that will work out. Yeah, I, that's my favorite part of the entire proposal because I think they should do this every year. I think as part of the normal season, make the eighth and ninth seed play in this little playoff and do the same way, single elimination, a double elimination. So then there's no it's not like half a game separated these two teams and you're wondering what if um, it actually it's exciting and ultimately it doesn't affect anything because each either team is going to get murked by the first seed. But I think it makes it a little bit more exciting and it gives that ninth seed a chance. Now, yeah, overall, how yeah. how insufferable is Simmons going to be if they do a plan tournament eventually? I mean, he's been talking about it for like 15 years. This guy's going to be he, high, high, high on his horse. He is it. Can he get higher? He does deserve props for being like somewhat of the initiator of this idea. But at the same time, I think they also want to do the midseason tournament. So how are they going to balance that, which a potential playing game? And it's like, does this become too gimmicky overall? Like one of the reasons they didn't do the World Cup is because they were like, we need to make this as normal as possible. But. Is that something they end up just opting for instead? And maybe the winners of those World Cups are guaranteed eight seeds at the minimum or something to that effect. Nah, I think I think the gimmicky stuff like a midseason tournament, you save that for the midseason. I like this double elimination because it's only two extra games. It doesn't affect any other teams but the eighth and ninth seed. And ultimately, it doesn't disrupt anything because it's just whoever's playing for that eighth seed. So um, I'm fine with it. I think they nailed it on the head with this proposal. It's weird getting Phoenix and Washington in there. I don't know why they couldn't have done 20 teams and left those two out. I've been reading that apparently it's because when they're thinking about scheduling, 
um, I don't know, the permutations combination, somehow it, it makes more sense to have those two additional teams. They're That's thinking about imagine. eyeballs. They're thinking about TV ratings and they're thinking about sponsorship and advertising dollars. And they know they need the two premier franchises <laughs> in the league. In this, I was in just going to say that if they're going after TV ratings, that's not the way to do it. Speaking um, of schedule really quickly, one thing that I do have somewhat of an issue with, but I don't think that it's I don't know that it's solvable is because every team has played an, an uneven number of games. Specifically, some teams have played an odd number of games and some team have played even. So if you look at the Wizards, right, to qualify for this play-in game, they have to get within four games of the Magic. Right now, they're five and a half back, but that might as well be six because they're if they both play eight games, they're going to end with half, half, you know, a game less. So this is a problem in the West, too, where San Antonio, the, where it stands, I think is is somewhat is a half game off from where Sacramento and, and uh, Portland are. And I don't know if they could have fixed this, but I wonder if like there was an even number of teams that were half a game off. They could have just had them play nine games instead of eight or something to even it out. But maybe then it would have been unfair to like create an extra edge. But that's the only thing where it's like that half game really ends up being like a full game that you're back. Well, what they probably could have done, I haven't done the math on this, is they could have probably done it based on winning percentage. I basically said that like these teams have to get within a certain winning percentage. Mm-hmm. And basically nullify that half game disadvantage that they have. That probably would have made sense. Yeah. So I would feel like that's what they'll that do. They will do that. Yeah. But the only challenge Sorry. with that is it, it becomes an arbitrary. Like if one team played one more game and it happened to be a game in the regular season that was against some piss poor team, right. that's the game that you win that puts you into a more favorable winning percentage. Like obviously you can't make it perfect, but. Um, that's the only problem I'm, with doing it that way. I mean, you could take that back to the full season, though, right? Because you don't have equal strength of schedules in the NBA. So, like, yeah. inevitably, that that's true regardless of whether you play 82 or 71 or whatever, right? That's always going to be true. Incidentally, Atlanta lost out on a top three pick because the winning percentage thing of when the uh, records froze. So they are not going to have a top three. It's like 14% chance you know, it was the highest you can get for the top three picks to get the number one pick. And that's now going to Minnesota, which is actually going to um, uh, no, Golden State's pick is next year. That's correct. The, the pick to Golden State's next year. So, yeah, Minnesota could be in line for a top three pick, which they badly need. Um, one other thing we need to talk about is apparently the NBA is allowing teams to bring their home floor with them um, to add an element for home court advantage. I think this is actually really important. Um, the Celtics need their parquet floor. You know, the Lakers need the stars, the 16 stars around the middle. Like all of this is going to factor. The Wizards need the district thing at the bottom. All of this is going to factor in big, I think. But have they talked at all about the schedule in terms of how many games they expect to play? Like, is this going to be a summer league style where they're going all day or are they still going to try to like create TV um, viewing windows? They've they've come out and said that they're going to try to do five to six games a day. Um, every team is going to play only maximum of one back-to-back out of the eight games. So every other day games, five to six a day. Um, I don't. They're going to run through all day. I don't think they're going to be able to slot them all in primetime slots. So it's it's going to be a little bit weird. But most of us are home anyway. Like don't tell me you're not going to have one monitor with Wiz Pacers on and. 
Sons. One monitor. I'm giving Bucks. my two weeks notice on July 17th. Like, <laughs> I'm not gonna be distracted from this. Yeah. So they're gonna. I think they're gonna be streaming games all day. I think they're gonna. If they're doing five to six, there's not gonna be Amazing. enough slots. Yeah. Amazing. I'm about to become the worst employee. Yeah. Those games will be from like 1 a.m. until noon for me. You have so to. I'll yeah. be like barely sleeping, and I'll be like on one laptop. The good thing about working from home, I have one laptop on the game, and then. Or the TV on, and then uh, one laptop pretending to work, being on Zoom calls. <laughs> exactly. Like, oh yeah, sorry. What did, what did you say? I was watching a box out. <laughs> um, but any any other final thoughts on the format? So I think we're all we all kind of like it. Um, the only the only other thing I'll add is home court is not there. I mean, we knew this going to Orlando. Um, we talked about it briefly last week. Do you think? That's going to be an issue um, in the grand scheme of things, or do you think now that they've got their own floors, that then the home court advantage is back in full force? Um, it's a big issue. It's not an issue until we get to when it's only the big boys left. So when you have the Milwaukee versus Toronto, Milwaukee versus Boston, um, and then LA versus LA, it you know, game seven at Staples Center or game center at Fisher State. Like, look at the Sixers. If you look at their home road splits, they look like the best team of all time versus like a bottom five lottery team. That's how big of a, uh, you know, gap there is in their splits. And so this is the this is the reality of the situation. They've, they've talked about a number of um, different ways to kind of make the home teams whole, including like allowing players to get a seventh foul and just like some and like get giving them more possessions, like the start of the first, second and fourth quarters, things like that. So I don't like any of that. I think you just got to play like, I'm sorry, this is the way it is. Like, sorry, there's a global pandemic in midway to the season. Um, I don't know where the, where they've landed on things like crowd noise, but that could be something you could add. Um, but other than that, man, at the end of the day, like it's going to matter and it, you could put an asterisk if you want, but you just got to play ball at this point, and and like that should be not a not as big of a concern in my opinion as everything else that could go wrong here. I'm gonna I'm gonna go the other way on this. I think like home and road matters, and I agree. But this is neutral site, right? So like the reason that people's road like home uh, record is better than their road record is because when you're on the road, you're in someone else's home. But when you're playing neutral site, you're let's say you're the better team. You're supposed to have home court advantage at a neutral site the better team should win, right? Because you're not on the road. So how, I, my opinion is, like, it really doesn't matter that much. It's a good, like, it's good for someone to talk about if LeBron wins or if he loses. Like, that'll be kind of like a something to crown him with or beat him with. But, like, in the end, I don't think I, the better team should win if it's on neutral side. So the thing I don't, we don't talk about enough is this idea that if you think about a normal series, the momentum shifts between – you even if you lose two at on the road, you go back home, you're energized, you feel like you can win the next two games. And sometimes we see series swing where it goes 2-0 and then it goes back 2-2 tied going into game five. That ebb and flow in each series is not going to be there. It's going to be just each game feels like it's blending into another. And I don't know, maybe that favors the better teams because, like you said, you don't have to deal with going on that hostile environment. They're not Road team's not fired up. Those bench players aren't going to all of a sudden light it up in game three and game four and save you. So I think it does favor the better teams and somehow, even though 
you would think that they fought all season to get home court and now you've taken it away um, by the strength of just their pure talent. Yeah, they should be winning out. Yeah, that's why I think it only matters if the teams are so even like the Clippers and Lakers who are probably like, you know, a dead heat in terms of who's the better team. But to Kush, to your point, no one's at home. So it's not like you're on the road when someone else is home. They're all on the road. Um, you don't no one has familiarity with the rims. There's no crowd noise. So it's, you know, I think all of those and like the things like I like the bench, you know, how like if you're in the corner shooting a corner three, the bench is like screaming at you. Like, none of that's going to happen because these guys are going to have to socially distance. So they're going to have to actually like sit back. It's going to be a, like an AAU atmosphere almost where you're just like walking up, playing and sitting down. And like, I think ultimately it's unfortunate, but there's no other better solution right now. Yeah, I'm actually like pretty excited about watching like the MT arena playoff basketball. Like, I think it's going to be strange, but like, depending on how much they let you actually hear, like what the guys are saying to each other. And like, you know, it's going to feel, it's going to feel very strange to watch the highest quality basketball at like the most important time for their season. And then just be like empty. Right. Yeah. Right? Like you're watching it like a lifetime fitness. So <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> It'll be interesting. What I'd love for to happen is other teams being able to sit in the stands and watch. Like, could you imagine, like, LeBron sitting in the stands and then the Lakers heckling the Clippers when they're playing in their games just because, obviously, they don't want to face them later on. And none of this will happen, but it would be interesting seeing, like, what players are rooting for who. It becomes a strategic little kind of game. To, you know, how, what teams do you want to to try to distract and throw off? But you know what's funny about that is that, like, in the first round, there'll be, like, loads of players who, like, watch the games, right? By the time the finals comes around, like, Russ ain't sticking around to watch, like, the finals, right? He's gone. He's off to Paris. Like, he's doing his fashion thing. Like, Harden's back to whatever Harden does in the offseason. Like, these guys Strip aren't going to stick around to watch, so it'll be, like, empty, um, which is kind of a funny – it'll be a funny dynamic. I was thinking that, like, are there certain basketball junkies who just want to watch? Like, imagine having a seat to watching the finals that close, or are you just, like, still gutted by what happened and, like, you know, painful loss, and, and you're just like, I want to get out of here. I need to get out of this bubble. Because, oh, I mean, yeah. they're not going to stick around till October 12th just to watch basketball. Like, they can watch on their TV. Nah, the teams that are down 3-0, they're going to throw in the towel. They're going to – You'll see them yeah. mail it in because they're all trying to get out of Orlando. You don't want to be stuck at Disney World for an extended period of time if you're not playing. So, um, But anyways, it, I think we're all excited the NBA is coming back. Um, it's great news, but it does beg a broader question. Uh, we sometimes conveniently forget that one of the reasons the NBA did get postponed and one of the reasons kind of our whole lives have been upended right now is because of this global pandemic that is COVID-19. And we've spent... A lot of time talking about it um, over the last couple of months, but sometimes once the NBA is back, once some momentum's there, it fell, it falls kind of out of out of mind, and we forget that this is potentially a dangerous thing that's being proposed. We're putting these players all together, and no matter all the measures that are being taken in terms of only limited staff, limited teams, the reality is that people could contract COVID, players could contract COVID, old coaches staff members who are more susceptible can contract COVID. And then it becomes a question of an ethical question is, was the NBA too, was rushing this return back? 
are we doing what's right in terms of the safety of the players and the staff? Or are we too excited and kind of pushing forward basketball because of the T- the CBA and the revenue implications? And so wanted to bring back that that back to the forefront. How do you think about given the current state of COVID? And yes, things have been easing up across the country, but there's still 110,000 deaths in the U.S. to date. Um, there's still more cases that are being reported, even though it's slowly trickling off. What are your thoughts on the NBA's approach to this? Do you think, um, and I want to start with Kush and get your thoughts too. And as someone who's also providing a different perspective, given that you're not in the U.S. currently, you know, you are in Thailand. So you're seeing things from afar and how the U.S. is reacting to a lot of things. How do you think the NBA is handling the situation? Are we rushing this return or do you think maybe we have the safeguards in place to make this uh, work? Yeah, it's a good it's a good question, and there's like a lot to unpack there, right? I think, uh, look, if if the NBA comes back and someone contracts the virus, and God forbid someone passes away, right, in the NBA community, like how are we all going to feel about that, right? Because at that point, it feels like an avoidable death, right? Suddenly, it feels like, well, we just wanted basketball back, and we risk, and like someone lost their life because of it. Now. I also have, you also have to take into account that like July 31st is quite far away, right? Like I think we all thought that, you know, they're going to come up with the format and we're going to be playing basketball like within a week, right? I was myself was pretty shocked that July 31st was the date they took it up, and I, I, in a way, I'm kind of glad because like let's be real, in the next two weeks there's going to be a second wave, right? I mean, you guys talked about it earlier on the pod, like obviously there are bigger things going on in America, like the protests and people are gathering and, you know, of course that's, that's like a really important thing, but, you know, at, during a pandemic for that many people to gather will only lead to what you would have to assume is another wave. Right. So that takes you, you know, through June where you're going to see a spike, even though it's recently flattened. So, so I don't know, right. By the end of July, what position are we going to be in? Are, are, is the, is the state's going to be in a place like they are now, are they going to be back like with cases increasing and and then suddenly it's not going to seem so smart to restart the NBA. The good thing is they have the format, they have a date, but they don't have to do it. Right. If you get to July 20th and it's not looking good, they, they can just postpone it. So uh, there's a lot, there's a lot to take into account. And look, the, the last point that I want to make on this is like, I think Michael Lewis talked about it on the Bill Simmons podcast, right? He said, like, how much do we really know about this virus? Like, I feel like we're all acting as though we're good, like we can get back to kind of our normal lives. Uh, but like, do we even know how it transmits? Like, I don't. Maybe you guys have read more on this than I have, but is it airborne? Does it go on surfaces? I've read both. You hear stories where people say, oh, I was in a party and like 10 people and everyone got it. Or someone's like, in a bar with a hundred people and no one got it, even though one person had it. Right. So like, that's the part that worries me a bit is that we're opening up and this is a, this is more of a global point than a, than an NBA point, but we're opening up and we don't know more about the virus than we did two months ago. And obviously we don't have a vaccine. So like, that's probably where most of my hesitation comes from. And I, yeah, I guess maybe I'm a bit more, pessimistic on it than others but yeah i'd be interested to hear, hear what you guys have to say on that 
Yeah, I think the ethical dilemma that's posed here is really, really challenging. Like selfishly, yeah, we all want live sports. We're all hunkered down for the last three months and it's it's not fun to live this way. Um, and the weird thing is there's a dissonance between what a lot of people probably perceive as the <clears throat> threat of the virus versus what it can be to people. And one of the biggest challenges I think here is there's almost a civic duty element of quarantining, of sheltering in place. Um, even let's put in the NBA context, like Kevin Durant got it, Christian Wood got it, Gobert, Rudy, um, Donovan Mitchell, et cetera, and, and more that we don't know of, and they're all fine, and they're expected to be fine. Their recovery rate is astronomically high, given their age, given their health, um, fitness level. But Greg Popovich is on the sideline, right? And there's other old – it's like – the, I think one thing you quickly learn is the ecosystem of people in general is is so vast that just because you yourself are not susceptible to something or not at risk of something doesn't mean that everyone that you interact with are also not that way. I mean, my perspective is that at some point you're going to have to have a certain level of risk tolerance short of a vaccine, which really has no defined date. To reintegrate with society, there is going to have to be some element of risk exposure. I think the way the NBA is doing it with the daily testing, with the essential bubble concept, with like a limited number of people involved, it's still a lot. Um, I think within the circumstances makes the most sense. Um, But look, like Chris said, there's a lot of really odd and conflicting reports about what is happening with this virus, like the Lake of Ozarks party and in, in the lake party in, in Arkansas from Memorial Day, the, you know, the Department of Health director for the state of Missouri said there was no additional cases found there. And it was hundreds of people interacting in a very small confines. And so either they're lying or we don't know what's going on. Um, but then there was a report that like a hair cutter infected like 90 people or something to that effect because she cut a ton of people's hair in like a week. And it's scary, but then it's not scary to some people and it's not scary for a lot of people. So how do you balance that? I think the problem here is even if at younger ages, the 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 fatality or the mortality rate or even the like advanced sickness rate is lower or low as the flu, the public uh the public nature of this pandemic would make it a almost an unrecoverable instance if something tragic were to happen not to mention of course something happened so i think it makes sense what they're doing but i think we could all look back on this in three months and think we're really really short-sighted and really selfish to go forward um understanding that there are a lot of business components a lot of financial components at play so the thing that gets me is that we've we criticize people we see on spring break, um, and this is even before the Ozarks, right? When people were out partying in Miami, mm-hmm. and they're like, "Oh, we're young, we're healthy, we won't get it," and everyone's response is, "But you gonna give it to your grandma? Think about others." But with players, we can. I mean, the the fact that they're around older staff, and they're younger we somehow gloss over that and we're like, they're healthy. They're fine because they're giving us something that we want. They're putting a product out there that we want to consume. And so we excuse that. So it's, it's weird how we treat those two differently when there's so much kind of disgust shown over those people who are so negligent when they go out in spring break. Um, I think the, you guys both touched on good points. It's, we don't know enough about this virus 
But when you don't know and you've seen the potential downside, you have to skew towards that potential downside. It's just the and it's not the answer anyone wants. Um, but that's just the reality of it. You have to be more cautious. Uh, and it's the thing I worry about with the NBA is that I don't know if we're going to have daily testing in place. Like I haven't seen concrete proposals out there. Yes, July 31st is a month and a half away, but they, it's easy to say that now. Oh, by then we'll have daily testing. We'll be testing everything and then. But let's say they don't have it. Are they going to say they're not going to do the season? I'm not so sure. I think they're they'll, they're going to play it a little bit fast and loose, and I don't think the public's going to complain. And that's where it gets dangerous. Like they're not taking a stance right now and saying, "Look, if we don't have daily testing by July 31st, we're not starting." Now you could say maybe there's no advantage to saying that, but the downside to not taking a stance like that is you start to become looser and looser with what the criteria is for testing. And then that's when it can backfire on you. And so that's the only thing I think they need to come up with a clear plan. and some guidelines with, Hey, if we don't have X, Y, and Z, we need to reevaluate whether we're going to start the season. It shouldn't be a blanket statement that we're going to start. And by then testing will be figured out. That's what I worry about. The only thing is there's a lot of logistics in play that have to already be in play. And so maybe pulling the plug should just be thought of that. Like we shouldn't worry about the sun cost or the fact that we've already put up because like July 7th, all the players are coming to Orlando. So June 30th is when training camp starts. They practice for a week in their own facilities and then they fly a week on the 7th of July to get quarantined in Orlando for uh, effectively three and a half weeks before the season starts. So I, I, I guess you shouldn't. Think of it of like, here's all this work we've already put into or all the contracts we've already signed. Maybe you just have to get rid of it. But, but yeah, I, I guess one thing that I'm uh, in terms of the testing, we won't know that there's going to be testing. I read something today. They've found some way to do some type of group testing. Um, I, I have absolutely no clue how this works scientifically or in practice, but they're looking into things like that. They still don't have an answer for testing. And so. That's a if that's a big contingency for this all working, then we should be nervous about whether this whole thing actually goes or doesn't go. Yeah, I mean, look, I think when this all started, the idea was like, okay, within two or three months, we'll all have done what we needed to do, and we'll be back in a place where the NBA can open up. Oh, everything can about open back up in a way that's safe, and you know, you know, it'll be. There'll be two or three months of our lives that we have to sacrifice for this. And like the, the response that you really wanted from the government or from the people in every country, right, was like a proper shutdown. And by proper shutdown, I mean like like a Wuhan style shutdown when they eventually did it. Right. It was like literally no one on the streets, 24 hours, really widespread testing where you're saying like, OK, first we shut down to stop the spread. Second, we test to know how much is out there. And then the third is like a stimulus, like a proper stimulus for your people. That means that if they're losing income, if they can't pay rent or whatever, they're they're not they're not dying by staying inside and they're not dying by going outside, right? Like you need to you need to give them a proper thing. And I think various countries have done it at various degrees of success. And I don't know that the U.S. has necessarily done any of those three things really well, right? Like the shutdown wasn't fully proper. The testing we don't know a lot about. And the stimulus, I mean, just wasn't enough, right? And so you you end up in this scenario where where people, and unfortunately it's the underprivileged more than anyone else, they they can't really afford to stay inside. And if they go outside and they get it, 
you don't have a healthcare system that's set up for them to get better. So like I, you know, we're, we're fortunate, the three of us in that, like we can do our jobs from home and like, you know, if we need it, we have proper healthcare, but like, that's the part that really like breaks your heart. Right. It's like, it's like at a time when we could have done something correctly and properly and some places have and other places have it, it's just ended up in this position where like the people who have the least like end up suffering the most again really yeah and now we're past the point of instituting anything like that because after the way we've handled it you can't go back to that wuhan style shutdown it's just it's now too politically it's become a politically charged thing which i want to talk about um and you you can't put in those measures it had to have been done early on and we're past that point which is scary because also now when you think about when we talked about the protests and all that and it's People are now, the public's opinion now is, look, nothing is happening. Like, all these states uh, opened up early. None, not a huge rise in cases. We have all these protests happening. We're not seeing, I mean, we knock on wood, we might see something coming up soon. But so far, there's no signs that this is all causing a spike. And so in the majority of people's minds, this thing is done. This thing is taken care of. I think we're you know, kind of smart enough and more, at least have enough kind of awareness to realize that we can't we don't know enough to make a blanket statement like that but majority of the country does not think that way and so i I do want to touch a little bit upon the fact that you know taking this a little bit away from sports but how did this become such a divisive topic it's become a politically charged topic it's become a divisive topic it's not just uh, left versus right but it's also the the haves versus the have-nots the people like us who have the comfort of working at home, like you mentioned, Kush, and we can be a little bit more risk averse versus those who can't. Um, so how did we get here with something that theoretically affects everyone the exact same and it's a threat to the entire nation? Yeah, I mean, I think like we talked about in the first segment, we're at a very scary time in our country's history in terms of literally any topic that in all logic and reason you would think okay there's one side that makes sense and that's the point that everyone should take because we're arguing certain obvious uh elements and even in the most obvious of situations let's take one where there's a global pandemic there we we've created these um conflicting viewpoints that make it seem like there's some type of ulterior motive in play right so the republicans or at least the the, the Trump uh, contingent has said, well, look, the Democrats are doing this because they want to tank the economy before the election. Right. And then the uh, Democrats are saying, well, no, Trump is just trying to keep the market up because he knows that's the strength of his reelection candidacy. And therefore, if the market's good, if the, you know, the economy is doing well, he's going to win again. And that's all he cares about. Deaths be damned. And because they've found a platform that the that they've convinced themselves that the other side has taken, and because so much of our country is made up of, I mean, I'm sorry to say this, but blind followers, you have a situation where there's so much vitriol, there's so much certainty and stubbornness in each side's beliefs that even saying something as simple as, hey, this is a highly contagious and for some segments of the population, a highly um, dangerous illness. So we should do our best to avoid it is something that has to be argued now. Um, and you know, one of the things that is a foundation of America is 
that we're a collection of states, right? We're not one national federal government that dictates what happens. And it's a strength in a lot of ways. Like North Dakota shouldn't be governed the same as California, right? That's fine. Where it becomes one of our biggest weaknesses is where we need a national level response to something like a pandemic, which doesn't care if you live in North Dakota, California, Arizona, it doesn't matter. Anybody um, is susceptible to it. And because of that, like you said, Kush, the combination of people didn't stay at home, it, the, the, the shelter in place, the quarantine was all over the map with the fact that they couldn't afford to stay at home because we couldn't even get out of our own way to provide a stimulus package that allowed people to continue their livelihood. We couldn't do things like suspend rent or mortgages because, again, it was a state by state rule. There are a million pieces of red tape to jump through. Um, and then you start getting into like the, the politicizing of it is because we're, we're arguing against logic in some ways, but then we're also arguing for um, maybe it is like people like us whose our biggest challenge is boredom have the luxury that other people don't. And so I don't know, like, you know, it, it's it's a tough situation because we're not we're not united in anything. But in this case, you're affecting someone's uh, liberties. And you know how we love liberties in this country. And I think that's not something we're used to is to do be told what to do. That is uh, a very challenging thing from Americans to get around. Yeah, that's 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 a really good point. I mean, so so two things, really. The first is like in the U.S., it's clear now that there's just no middle ground for anyone. Right. Like if one person if, if one side says something's good, the other side has to say it's bad. Like the idea of agreeing with a single belief that the other side has, like, doesn't seem to exist anymore. And so even in something that's as as Nathan said, as important that everyone is on the same page about as this, that hasn't happened because if the Democrats are saying this is really dangerous, then the other side wants to say, nah, you guys are just being really like soft, right? And it's not, it doesn't come from like, oh, we think it's actually not a big thing. It's like, oh, you're saying this, so I'm saying that. And the second point, like, I, you're right, like, look, freedom and liberty and these things that America is founded upon and that Americans hold really dear to their heart is a, a, an advantage and a really important thing and a beneficial thing in so many, so many ways. Don't get me wrong. But in this scenario, it's like the downfall, basically. And if you look at the countries like globally that have done well in responding to the pandemic, that have uh, managed it to a two or three month uh, problem rather than a, what's going to end up being a six month to a year issue, maybe in the States, is governments, is countries where the governments are feared. And I, I won't name them, but I mean, we know which countries those are and countries where the government's respected. And that, and there I'm thinking of places like New Zealand, places like Singapore, obviously smaller places, I agree, but also like they're smaller and, you know, Singapore, for example, is a very densely populated country. Like that it could have gotten really, really bad there, but, you know, people listen to their government, they respect it and they've reacted in a positive way. Now they've had issues recently because of the migrant populations there. So we won't get into it, but I'm saying just that the citizens are, are more tuned to listening to their government. And when the government said, hey, we need to hunker down a bit more, they did a second wave of sort of shutdown, people listened and they followed. Now, in America, you don't have a government that's either feared or respected at this point. I think it's safe to say by a lot of the population, obviously not all of the population. But if you don't have either of those in a pandemic, it, 
it sort of becomes a bit hard to control it. And then you add on to the fact what Nitin's saying, you have 50 states, open borders, no sort of like every state's governed in their own way. Um, it's a real sort of case study in, in everything that can go wrong, going wrong. And, and then the last point on top of that is a healthcare system that doesn't really work in the same way as most of the rest of the world, right? Yeah, and if you take if you take politics out of it, I think you guys have brought up good points. It even if we you know, let's say whatever your thoughts are on our political leadership and how they handled the crisis, which I think a lot of us think was not handled well, regardless of whether it's a Democrat or Republican office, I think a lot of these issues are cultural. They're systematic. They would and like you said, the 50 states open borders. The fact that Americans are very independent. They don't like listening to authority and kind of, you know, too much government control. Uh, all of these things would have existed no matter what. And this is hard. Asking people to stay in for two to three months is hard. And if I was someone who was living paycheck to paycheck and you're asking me to do this and I don't see any threat, I don't see cases going up, I don't know anyone in my circle or my extended network who has COVID, why the hell would I sign up to do this? And so I think we can all sympathize with those people, but it's just the way our country's set up, it's scary. It's that I don't know if anything, no matter how well it was handled, we still could have come to this inflection point where there is this tension, there is this kind of disagreement between the haves and the have-nots, and you know whether you're left or right. It, part of it feels like it's inevitable, and that's kind of scary because even if we if we do come across something like this again, I'd hope we're better prepared for second wave, for example, but I'm not so sure that America, compared to some of the other countries in the world, is equipped to handle something like this. To me, the only thing we'd be better prepared for in a second wave is our hospital system, right? Like ventilators and beds. The mindset of people won't change. And here's why, right? Like you just brought up, if you're in some of these states that have literally had in the hundreds of cases, not even thousands, hundreds of cases, and you're being told you can't go to work, I mean, really like put yourself in their shoes like wouldn't you feel the same and shouldn't you feel the same because this is your world you don't have the geopolitical understanding you don't you don't have this like hey i'm an infectious diseases expert or i even understand what the hell anthony fauci is saying like that's not part of your worldview yet you know you can't go be a waiter at the restaurant because they're telling you that it's closed and suddenly you're left holding the bag with what you owe on rent or what you owe on your car or like Kush said, any health expenses. So the, and, and the flip side to all this, and this is maybe our most underlying issue as a country and in a lot of ways as a world is the spread of misinformation, right? You don't know what to believe because there isn't a source of truth that is always unbiased. There are people saying, well, we're not testing anyone. Of course, there are not going to be many cases, which is absolutely true. Then you have people saying, well, no, we're just assigning anyone who dies if they had COVID, regardless of whether they died of COVID or not, they're assigning because they know that's how they're going to get funding, right? Then you say, okay, most of the deaths are in nursing homes. Like you guys sent COVID patients to these nursing homes. And then you're like, well, no, it's because like XYZ is happening on this side. And so if you didn't have the ability or the the wherewithal to understand how information is tainted one way or the other, you're going to believe what's in front of you. And if you believe a certain version of the truth, you're going to have a different philosophy than you, you know, us three might have. And I don't know how we solve for that, but it, you know, 
maybe this has been happening for a while. It probably was brought to our attention more at the 2016 election, right? And the way that transpired with Facebook ads and Cambridge Analytica and all this stuff. And it's really developed to a very, very dangerous fork in the road where you can no longer trust anything you read unless it's verified. You you know how like they, news sources won't publish until they get two to three sources? You almost have to do the same of news sources. It's like the derivative fact check. Um, and we all have our go-to news sources, right? Like I don't check Breitbart. I'm just going to tell you. But there's people who probably rely on only Breitbart for knowledge. And, and that's really, really scary because two people are going to receive uh, information on the same story and have totally different perspective, but not just because of their mindset, but because of the facts or the way it's been presented to them. Yeah. And like, this is really like a product of like the last decade of what we've gone through, right? Like this is where it all has come together in that we have lived in our little news bubbles. We all do. Um, we think ours is the right one and, and people on the other side think theirs is the right one. And, and it tells us exactly what we want to believe. Now, I don't think, I think there's probably a false equivalency to say that like, Hey, if you're reading the New York times who, uh, it, in my opinion, still has very high journalistic standards or the BBC where they actually do wait for two sources or whatever to publish, then it's the same as if you are reading Breitbart where they can write anything they want. But you can see how if you're on that other side and all you've been told is that, well, Breitbart is the truth and these guys are all lying. They're liberals. They're elites. They don't have your best interest at heart. And then they're also hearing like the debts aren't as high as they're saying they are. The debts are actually the millions in other places. They're just like hiding the facts. And like if that's what is what you want to believe, you're going to believe it because we all know if you read something that agrees with what you believe, you're going to you want to follow it. And I think that that's sort of, and especially like a lot of the cases are happening in big cities, right? There's also a rural versus urban battle that's existing, that's going on in the US. So you're like Nathan says, you're living in a rural community. You're told, hey, you can't go to work because in New York, thousands of people are dying and you're already predisposed to sort of be, be anti big cities, you know, anti the liberal elite to live there. It's it's all feeding the same thing, right? And it's crazy how much all of this has come to a head because of this pandemic, or it's all yeah. crystallized a lot more. And at the crux of it, we're trying to solve a science problem, not a political problem, but that's just the way it goes. And yeah, absolutely. New York Times, all these places are reputable, but in someone's mind, they may not be. And that's all that matters if you need that person to act in a logical and a in a um, informed manner. Absolutely. I mean, I think the next it'll be interesting to see how this unfolds over the next couple of months, because we are expecting a second wave. I think um, we know that this isn't over, despite promising signs, despite things reopening. It's not over. Uh, one last thing I want to end with. If the NBA, um, you know, real quickly, who's culpable if the NBA something does happen um, and someone gets contracts COVID and potentially passes away? Is it is it the players for wanting to play? Is it the, the teams for looking out for the revenue? Is it us who ultimately we're not putting up, you know, we're the ones who are demanding the content. We're the ones generating the eyeballs. We're the ones who want this to come back. Like who's culpable at the end of the day if, if something goes wrong? I mean, it's no one individually is culpable, right? But as a, as a society, I think we like, 
you're right. We're the ones who generate revenue for the NBA. This is the reason the NBA wants to come back is to make money and they make money because of us. And that sort of, uh, if you go down that path, then yeah, I guess it is, it is down to us for having that demand, but it's also kind of a strange thing to say because you're taking away culpability from like a pandemic response that should have been a lot better and a lot stronger than it was. Right. I, I'd say if the NBA never shut down, if it just like pandemic came, they kept playing and someone passed away, then sure, like let's lay it at the hands of us and, and the owners and, and the NBA. But they shut down three months, four months, five months by the time they start. And the response just hasn't been good enough to allow for that five months to make things wane in a way that the risk isn't there for, for the people, right? So a little bit of blame to go everywhere, I suppose, as with anything, no, no concrete answer on that. I think, you know, our desire or um, the pandemic response, those are second and third degree um, parts of this. And again, God forbid anything happens. I think ultimately, like, it's going to be Adam Silver is the face of the league in this regard, and he's the face of the restart. He's the commissioner. Um, and so there's going to be some, because ultimately we're all a bunch of nameless, faceless people, right? If you're a league and the pandemic response is what it is. It's not like, I mean, we're having a conversation about it on the same day they approved this. So it's not like anything is unknown to the way we've responded and the way things have gone. So, I mean, commissioner, but, you know, I think they're going to be overly, uh, conservative in the way they, uh, handle this. I think your temperature comes in, it's 99.1 instead of your normal 14 day rolling average of 98.5, you're out. Like, I really think it's going to be that strict. And I think, um, you know, they're going to do everything in their power to make sure they don't arrive at that kind of situation. But um, nothing is 100% certain. I should say, including if all the players stayed at home and went about their business, many of whom live in states that are going to be fully open by July 31st. So, we're really not in the 0% risk culture until there's a vaccine. And even then, we've given all our information to Bill Gates. Look, we've we've talked a lot about the downsides and the potential risks on this pod. But you know what? Ultimately, if everything goes well, the NBA's back. I'm excited. You guys are excited. We'll have basketball content to actually talk about starting in end of July. Uh, Kush, Before any we last go, thoughts? Final title. I need a title prediction from you, Kush. Uh, who's beating who? And in how many games? Uh, Celtics over Clippers, seven games. Ugh, but here's what I want now. Uh, here's what I want from you guys next time, or at some point in the next two months, I want you guys to talk about if Kawhi wins and gets MVP, Finals MVP, where is he in the Pantheon of Greats? Because last week when you guys did LeBron MJ, you guys kind of shoved him to the side a little bit. And I'm Hard curious. Days. I'm curious because if we're going to use three teams, three Finals MVPs, as a as a barometer for like really really one of the greats really one of the greats i want you guys to to hash that out a little bit i want to hear what you guys have to say yeah but listen thanks for having me on this has been awesome uh i know we've been talking about it for a while so uh i'll continue to executive produce in the background but uh this has been great so thanks a lot guys great having you kush um and talk to me when Kawhi plays 60 or 70 games in a season he's not load managing his way through through it all so anyways that's a this uh, topic for another time um please remember to rate review and subscribe to thick and thin we're on all major streaming platforms and send us questions and your thoughts on uh, the season returning um thick and thin hoops at gmail.com
and I'll talk to you guys soon.